Hey, good morning. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Ryan. I serve here as one of the pastors. And uh, we're in a series walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so you can make your way to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. And that's really our normal practice here at Veritas is to just uh, spend the vast majority of our time walking straight through books of the Bible, kind of passage by passage. And uh, what that often does is puts us in, uh, I guess we'll call it fun situations like the one we're in uh, this morning, because this morning we're talking about everybody's favorite subject, uh, church discipline. Uh, I know that a lot of you, uh, some of you, were uh, really jazzed up this morning, uh, waking up knowing you got to come to church and hear about this uh, this morning. I know this is uh, what really gets you up out of the bed this morning. You were like a kid on Christmas, just excited to hear about church discipline. Uh, if you are new with us, and uh, this is maybe your first Sunday, I'm just going to warn you, you should probably buckle in. Uh, it's going to get a little bit weird. Uh, because we really do believe, like this book, all of it, is God's very word to us. And so, man, we want to pay attention to it and seek to obey and listen to everything that God has to say to us, even when it's not that comfortable uh, or convenient like this morning. Um, and so, while it is going to be a little bit heavy this morning at times, I, I want you to know that God uh, put this word in the book for our good, that he does have something to say to us through it, and that his promise is that his word does not go forth in vain, that he will accomplish his good purposes uh, through it. And so I want to walk through this passage together and maybe dispel some questions or concerns you've had about church discipline, you know, what it even is, why we think we should do it, why we think uh, that it matters. And so I'm going to seek to answer your questions, but I need you to stick with me uh, through the whole sermon to hopefully get your question answered. And if you've still got questions after that, know that we're here and would love uh, to talk with you about that uh, as well. But this passage, it really breaks down into three questions uh, that, that Paul kind of raises and then answers. And so that's how we'll walk through it together this morning. We're going to see first, what is church discipline? And then why do we do church discipline? And then when do we do church discipline? And so what, why, and when? And ultimately, we're going to see that we should practice church discipline for the sake of our gospel witness, for the good of the church, and, and ultimately for the hope of restoration. And so let's look at this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to read through the entire chapter, starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us today. It speaks to us like this. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Whew, right? Well, uh, the first question to answer, what is church discipline? Uh, Well, Paul raises and addresses the situation that's really prompted the need for church discipline in verse 1 when he says that there is sexual immorality present in the church, and it's a type of sexual immorality that even the pagans, like people who don't follow Jesus, they look in and they're like, y'all have got to stop that. Like, that is nasty. Uh, Because Paul says a man has his father's wife. That means some dude is sleeping with his stepmom. And it's not just like this has happened once. Notice that the verb is in the present tense. Paul doesn't say a man had his father's wife. He says a man has his father's wife. Like he is still doing this. This is still going on. And and once again, Corinth was a city that was known for its sexual immorality. They were incredibly sexually confused and broken. But, But even they are looking in at this and being like, Like, stop it. Just stop it. This is so nasty. What are you guys doing? But but if you notice, I hope you notice as we read through it, what, what Paul focuses on for the rest of the chapter is really not this man's sin, but the church's response to it. That's what his focus is here, because in verse 2 he says, and you guys are arrogant about it. You know, you guys are like, oh, we're so sexually progressive. We're so enlightened. We've got freedom in Jesus now to do things like this and celebrate things like this. And Paul's like, hey, no, you don't. While you're celebrating this, you should be mourning this, that you've tolerated sin like this in your community. And then he gives us the example of what church discipline is, and we'll talk more about this in just a little bit. Uh, But he gives us the example of what it is when he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you, be put outside the church community. Paul says he's not there with them, but he's already pronounced judgment on this matter and on this person. Now, I know if you were here last week, we, we heard Paul say in 1 Corinthians 4 that it's really a small thing uh, if, if the Corinthians or any human court judges him. He doesn't even judge himself because it's the Lord who is going to judge him. But, but now he's talking about a judgment he's already made uh, and a judgment that he wants the Corinthian church to make and carry out. And I, and I want to tell you, he's not contradicting himself. The, the judgment he was talking about last week was that the Corinthians were making judgments and and evaluating the faithfulness of their leaders on worldly standards based on whether or not they compared to uh, the public speakers of their day, and those are the wrong judgments to make. And so Paul's saying, hey, you make these judgments about things that are wrong, that God has not revealed in His Word, that aren't actually the standard of faithfulness, But then on the other hand, you don't make judgments about what is clearly sin and out of bounds for followers of Jesus. Like these are the type of judgments that we are to make in the church. Because Paul then says in verse 4, when you are assembled, when you're gathered together as a church in the name of the Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. You're to carry out this judgment against him. 
Now, I'll be honest, I don't know exactly what Paul means when he says that his spirit is present with them, but, but what is very clear is what he says church discipline is. It's the church excommunicating someone, putting them out of fellowship. To, to excommunicate someone means to put them out of the community, or you can even kind of hear it in the word. It means to put them out of communion. And, and so the way this practically fleshes out when it gets to the end of a formal church discipline process is that we would remove someone from partnership in the church and ask them not to take communion any longer. Because when you become a partner, that's what we call membership here at Veritas, when you become a partner, one of the major things that's happening there is us as a church affirming to the best of our knowledge and ability that you really are a follower of Jesus. Becoming a partner does not make you a Christian any more than putting on a jersey makes you a basketball player, but, but the church is one of the key means that God has given you for assurance of your salvation. The Bible says in Matthew 18 that the church has been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven to be a means of affirming your faith in Jesus. In fact, we're going to see it when we get to 1 Corinthians 14, that Paul really doesn't seem to have a category for people who claim to be followers of Jesus but are not connected to a local church. Like in his mind, there are unbelievers who will come into a church gathering, and there are people who have covenanted themselves to be a part of that local church body. Because the way you express your belonging to the global church of Jesus, the way you express your belonging to Jesus, is by belonging to a local expression of his body, a local expression of his church. And so if coming into membership, if coming into partnership in the church is, is us as a church saying, hey, to the best of our knowledge and ability, we really do think that you are a follower of Jesus, we can affirm this person's faith in Jesus, then excommunication is the flip side of that. It's us as a church removing someone's partnership and saying, hey, based on their pattern of unrepentant sin, we can no longer in good conscience affirm their profession of faith in Jesus any longer. We cannot say that everything is good with them and Jesus. And I want you to see as well, this is not a snap judgment. It's not like every time somebody sins, you move to excommunicate them. Uh, the Bible lays out a process for church discipline, and excommunication is at the end of that process. And so keep your place here in 1 Corinthians 5, but you can go ahead and flip over to Matthew 18, uh, or it's going to come up on the screen. But we're going to look at, real quickly at Matthew 18, where Jesus lays out this process for church discipline. And so this is Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And so Jesus lays out this process here. And some people with this, they've distinguished between formative church discipline and formal church discipline. And I think that's a helpful distinction for us to make. A formative church discipline is what Jesus says needs to happen first here, and it's actually happening all the time, even if you don't realize it. 
Because when somebody sins against you, you're supposed to go to them, just you and him or her alone. Now, listen, this is important. Unless it's a case of abuse, unless this person has been abusive towards you, like, you are to go to that person alone, not gossip about them to somebody else, not kind of text them, email them, tweet about them, Facebook about them. You're to go to them in person and tell them how they sinned against you. And and if you do that and they repent of that, then the process ends there. And, And this happens all the time, does it not? If you've been in the church for any length of time, I hope you've had experience with this formative aspect of church discipline. I have. Like, I've had people in this church, like here at Veritas, come to me and tell me, hey, you said this or you did this, and, and I think it was wrong. Like, I think you sinned against me in that. And they were right, and I had to repent of that. That's formative church discipline. It's helping form us deeper into the image of Jesus, and it characterizes and should characterize a whole lot of our lives because we need to continually be repenting, turning from our sin and turning back to Jesus because we're continually sinning. But if that formative discipline happens and the person doesn't repent, then you should move to the next step, taking a a few other people with you to confront them. And I think that's helpful both for you and for the person that you're confronting. Because if you can't get a group to go with you, like if nobody in your community group will agree with you on this and go with you to uh, confront this person, it may be evidence that you're wrong in your interpretation and that they didn't actually sin against you. But, but oftentimes, and I'd say probably most of the time, other people have witnessed this as well, and so it's helpful to provide that additional means of accountability uh, and bring others into this uh, situation. Now, one of the things we also think is helpful in this step is if you've done this, if you've brought a group of people, uh, maybe people in your community group, and you've confronted this person and they still have not repented, we think it's helpful at that point uh, to bring us as the elders into the situation. Um, We as your elders are charged by God with oversight of the partners of this church. We're going to have to give an account to God for how we stewarded you as the partners and how we managed and oversaw that. Uh, And so it just adds another helpful layer of accountability and seriousness to the issue if if you bring us as the elders into that situation. It gives another opportunity to call this person to repentance. And and look, there's no set timeline on this process. This isn't like you do step one the first week and then a week later you do step two and if they don't repent a week later you do step three or you bring elders into it. Like, no, this should be a long period of time of us calling this person to repent, pleading with them to repent a long time before uh, it gets uh, to the third step that Jesus calls out here and lays out here, uh, which is when we tell it to the church. And so for us, if it gets to this place, we notify the partners that we have placed someone under church discipline, and we tell you the reason why, and we're wanting every partner to get involved and call this person to repentance. Because this passage is clear, unrepentant sin that is left unchecked by those in our body who claim the name of Jesus, it affects us as a community. It does not just affect them. And so we want you to call them to repentance and plead with them to turn around. And and after a long period of time doing that, when we've told it to you as the partners of the church and we've pled with this person to repent, after a long time, if they still refuse to repent, then unfortunately we have to take the final step. Uh, And I said we there intentionally. This is not something that the elders do. 
This is something that the church does. All of us as partners take this action together. Back in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4, Paul says, when you are assembled, you're to do this, and that you there is second person plural. So what Paul is saying, he's saying, when y'all are assembled, y'all are to do this. There's nothing specific about the elders there. That is the church as a whole taking this final step of excommunication, uh, which I'll tell you, just even this year, we've changed this in our bylaws to reflect this so that uh, partners are the ones who have the power of excommunication, not just the elders, uh, because we want to reflect what 1 Corinthians 5 says. We were challenged and corrected by what 1 Corinthians 5 says here. But in this final step, we do what Jesus says to do here in Matthew 18, and we treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector, like an unbeliever. Now, I'll tell you, there's a lot of different interpretations of what Jesus exactly means when he says this, but I'll just put my cards on the table and tell you what I think he means here. If you look at how Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors in the gospel, uh, he still loved them, uh, he was still friends with them, he still interacted with them, he just didn't treat them as his followers. He didn't treat them like they were believers in him. Now, flip back over to 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, because it's the same thing that Paul means here in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians when he says they're to deliver this man over to Satan. Now, I know that's weird language, but the Bible tells us in another place that Satan is the ruler of this world. And, and so this means putting this person out of partnership and handing them over to the world where Satan's values of living for yourself and trying to be your own God and rebelling against God are the values that get lived out. Maybe thinking about it like this would help. Um, when you're renting a house and something goes wrong, something breaks, and let's say it wasn't your fault, um, most of the time you have the protection uh, that, and, and the, the, the hope that the landlord is going to fix that, right? Like not always, but most of the time you do have the protection that the landlord, it's his or her responsibility to fix and repair this thing that broke and went wrong. Uh, but when you own a home, Everything that goes wrong, whether it was your fault or not, everything that breaks, it's now your responsibility to fix. You lost all the protection you had when you were just renting a home of, of that landlord. Well, in the same way, being handed over to Satan means that this person's put out of partnership in the church and has the protection of the church and the benefits of church membership and the assurance that this church affirms your profession of faith removed from them. They're put out of partnership so that they know, hey, this is on your head now. You're on your own out here, and you should have no assurance of salvation out here. Now, to clarify, if the sin is egregious enough or if it's of a criminal nature, this might also require, like, actually barring this person from coming back to church gatherings. But I'd say most of the time, uh, it means removing their partnership, telling them not to take communion, because 1 Corinthians 11 says they'll drink judgment on themselves if they do, and treating them like an unbeliever. And, in, and don't miss, we're, we're not supposed to do this just because we want to be mean to people. This should never happen without heartbreak. It should never happen without tears. Because the hope and goal of all church discipline is not excommunication, it's restoration. That this person would come back to Jesus. This is why Paul says you're to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, meaning his sinful nature that he's still unrepentant of so that it might be destroyed and so that his spirit might be saved in the day when the Lord returns. The hope is that handing them over to the world would be the means that God uses to let them experience the consequences of their sins and wake up and repent 
and come back to Jesus. And so what is church discipline? It's a process, but at the end of the process, it is putting someone outside of the church community in the hopes that they would repent and come back to Jesus and we would get to welcome them back into fellowship. And so if that's what it is, that leads next to why should we do it? Why do we do church discipline? Look back again at the text in verse 6 with me. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul uses this analogy of leaven, and we may be more familiar with that as yeast. Uh, What does yeast do? Well, you know I can't bake or cook, so I would not know from experience, but I can Google, and so when you put yeast in the bread, uh, it causes the bread to rise, right? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying when you put just a little bit of leaven or yeast in there, it spreads throughout the whole lump of bread, and it causes the whole loaf of bread to rise, He's comparing this man's sin to leaven and saying, don't you realize while you're boasting about this and not dealing with it, that it's going to spread its toxic effects to the entire church community. Everyone and everything is going to be affected by this. And so Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven, put this person out of the community so that we can be a new lump. And then he gives us the gospel reason why in verse 7. He says, we really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, this is one of the examples of how if you're going to understand what the New Testament is talking about, you have to understand what the Old Testament is talking about because Paul is reaching back to the story of the Exodus here. In the story of the Exodus, the Israelites were in slavery to Egypt. And so God uh, worked ten plagues on the Egyptians to set uh, his people free. And in the final plague... God said that because Israel was his son and Egypt was not setting them free, uh, he was going to kill all of their firstborn sons as an act of judgment on them. And, And so the destroying angel was going to pass through the land of Egypt and every person and every firstborn son in the land was going to die. The only way you could preserve your firstborn son is if the Passover lamb was sacrificed in his place. And so every house was supposed to sacrifice a lamb and then spread its blood over their doorposts so that when the destroying angel passed through the land and saw the blood of the lamb over their doorposts, he would pass over their house and spare their firstborn son. And, And not only were they supposed to do that, they were also supposed to have a meal with this lamb that they sacrificed, you know, make some good euros out of this. Uh, And with those euros, they were also supposed to have unleavened bread. And, And When this happens, after God delivers his people, he actually institutes this as a feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, using leaven as a sign of their time in slavery and basically saying, hey, I'm going to deliver you so quickly that you're not even going to have time to let the bread rise. It, It was a feast to celebrate how powerfully and decisively God had set them free from their slavery. And so what Paul's doing here, he's applying this to us in Jesus and saying, in Jesus, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. We really are unleavened, and so we should celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. Well, how do we do that? Well, we don't do it by actually reinstituting the feast, but by walking in the freedom from sin that Jesus has purchased for us. 
We celebrate by not walking in our old life of sin, things like malice and evil, but instead by walking in sincerity and truth. Really, Paul's telling us to be who we now are in Jesus. Um, Depending on how long you've been here in Fayetteville, you may or may not know this, but Fayetteville is actually uh, located in what's known as the Sand Hills region of North Carolina. And if you didn't believe that, if you doubt that, uh, just come try to mow the lawn at my house. Um, because my lawn is basically like a bunch of weeds on top of a sand pit. And so mowing the lawn always kicks up a bunch of sand and dust and dirt and grass. And so by the time I'm done mowing, uh, my clothes are usually pretty nasty. And I've usually got like a line uh, where my sock ends, where everything above that on my leg is covered in dirt and dust and grass and all of that. Uh, And so when I'm done mowing, I'll go and take a shower. And it takes a little bit longer than normal, but I'm usually able to get all of that dirt and dust and grass off Uh, and get myself clean in the shower. Now, what would you think of me if after I get done mowing and take this shower and get clean, if I stepped out of the shower and then just put those clothes that I had mowed in right back on? You'd think that's weird, right? Like, people don't do that. If you do that, you shouldn't do that. Like, that'd be ridiculous, right? Well, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, Jesus, he's made you clean. He's forgiven and freed you from your sins, so you should be who you now are and walk in the newness that Jesus has purchased for you and not put the old clothes of sin back on. And here that means that we as a church should be a holy and a distinct people because the specific thing that Paul is talking about here is removing someone whose unrepentant sin is spreading like leaven through dough. Now, I think one of the reasons we just have a hard time kind of wrapping our minds around this, that this is actually what we would be called to do in this situation, is that we think our sin really just kind of affects us, but it doesn't. And God forbid, if somebody goes to the doctor and finds out that they have cancer, would it be any comfort to them if the doctor said, hey, uh, yeah, you, you have cancer, but hey, not a big deal, nothing to worry about. It's really not that big. It's really very small. We can barely even see it. And so we're not going to do anything about it. We're not even going to worry about it. No, of course not, right? You'd be like, I don't care how small it is. Get it out of me. And in the same way, Paul is serious about us taking sin in our community seriously and getting it out of the community when it brings shame on the name of Jesus and it harms our gospel witness. Now, we're going to talk about this more in just a second, but this is not just any time someone sins. Someone pointed out, Paul says to celebrate the feast in sincerity and truth, not in perfection and truth. God is not calling us to sinless perfection here. What Paul is saying is that the reason we do church discipline is to protect the witness of the gospel and to protect the church because blatant, unrepentant sin that's left undealt with is like a cancer that will not stop spreading. And letting people who claim the name of Christ and are partners of Veritas live in blatant, unrepentant sin, that tells the world that Jesus doesn't actually change lives, that the gospel isn't actually powerful for salvation. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus, he meets us where we are, but he does not leave us where we are, that he has come and he has lived in our place and he's died in our place and he rose to forgive our sins and set us free from them And we want to walk in that freedom. Letting blatant, unrepentant sin go unaddressed in our community will bring shame upon our gospel witness because it tells the world that that gospel doesn't really do anything, that Jesus really isn't that impressive, that he really doesn't change lives. Paul's saying the fame of Jesus is at stake here. 
And so we do church discipline for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of our witness to the gospel's power to heal and change and transform people's lives. Finally, the text helps us answer the question, when? When do we do church discipline? Look again at verse 9 with me. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So we mentioned this the first week we were in 1 Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians isn't actually the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We don't have that letter, but it it seems that from that letter, the Corinthians got confused, and now he's clarifying for them. Because he told them not to associate with sexually immoral people, and they wrongly took that to mean don't associate with unbelievers. But I love how explicit Paul is about this here. He's like, hey, I was not talking about unbelievers. If you didn't associate with sexually immoral, greedy, and idolatrous people, you'd have to kind of get in your hidey hole and leave the world, because that's like everybody. Now, something I want you to notice as well here is that Paul is actually assuming that you and I will have relationships with lost people, that that is a good thing, that we will associate with them. Like, you should be friends with, and you should build relationships with people that are far from Jesus. We are not called to get in our holy huddle and leave the world. We're called to follow Jesus and be distinct while we live in the world and among the world. And what we're also not called to do is police the world's behavior because they're lost. And lost people are going to act like lost people. Like, yes, we're going to have to call sin, sin and point out that it's not going to lead to flourishing. But at the end of the day, it is not our job to police other people's morality who do not follow Jesus. Because we are not calling them to morality, we're calling them to Jesus. Why would they want to obey the commands of Jesus when they don't love him, trust him, and follow him? We should focus our energy on loving lost people, building relationships with them, being a friend to them, not trying to get unbelievers to live like a follower of Jesus when they are not a follower of Jesus. And so that's not who we disassociate with. Paul clarifies and he tells us that we're not to associate with someone who claims the name of brother or sister, someone who claims the name of Jesus if they're guilty of blatant, unrepentant sin like sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or drunkenness or slander or things like this. Now, once again, often we flip this and we just worry about sins outside the church, but, but Paul is saying we should actually be worried more uh, about blatant, unaddressed sin from people who claim the name of Jesus than we should be worried about lost people acting like lost people. Because he says in verse 12, we've got nothing to do with judging outsiders. God is going to judge them. It's people inside the church who have claimed the name of Jesus, who have partnered with us as a church that we are to judge. And I think with this, Paul actually answers the question for us of when we do church discipline. 
Um, sometimes when church discipline gets talked about, I think some people kind of think of it like that scene from Parks and Rec where they've got uh, ambassadors from another country's parks department uh, in town, and uh, these, these ambassadors witness a town hall where the people of Pawnee are like shouting down and uh, freaking out uh, on Tom and Leslie Nope. And so one of the ambassadors kind of goes off to the side and is talking to the camera, and he's like, where are the armed men to take these people away and put them in jail? You know, because in my country, if you shout like that, you get put in jail. If you drive too fast, they put you in jail. If you drive too slow, they put you in jail. You steal, you go right to jail. You undercook fish, right to jail. You overcook chicken, jail. If you make an appointment at the dentist's office and then you don't show up, believe it or not, they put you in jail for that. Church discipline is not like that. It's not like, hey, if you sin, straight to church discipline. If you lie, you're in church discipline. If you lust, right to church discipline. It's not that at all. We all sin, and we're all going to struggle with sin every day until Jesus comes back. But that's the key word in difference. The difference between the sins we all struggle with and the sins that merit church discipline is actually our response to them. Are you struggling and fighting against your sin, or are you celebrating it? Struggling against sin is actually a sign that spiritual life is in you, because spiritually dead people who love their sin don't fight against it. The fight is a sign of life and should give you assurance that you really are Jesus's. And so we don't practice formal church discipline when somebody sins, or even when somebody uh, is, is trapped in a pattern of habitual sin that they can't seem to get victory over, but they're actively trying to fight against. But on the other hand, when people confront you and you dig in your heels and you say, no, that's not sin. I'm not going to stop. You can't tell me what to do. That's when we need to practice church discipline. Not just for the good of the church, for the good of the person who's claiming the name of Jesus, but living a life that looks nothing like him and giving a middle finger to his clear commands. And the reason why it's for the good of the person who's under discipline is because it's not giving them false assurance of salvation. That's why Paul says, purge them from among you and don't associate with them. Don't even eat with them. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2, we see that Peter was eating with the Gentiles before the Judaizers came. But when the Judaizers came, he shrunk back in fear and stopped eating with them. And you can see from that that, that eating meals together, it communicated acceptance and welcome and fellowship. And so Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't eat with them. Don't give them false assurance of salvation and fellowship when they shouldn't have it. And so how I think this practically plays out for us, if someone's in a process of formal church discipline, it's not that you stop interacting with them and you just completely shun them and cut them off. It's not that at all. Instead, the relationship should just change. It's not like a relationship you should have with a lost friend who, who is an unbeliever and knows they're an unbeliever, doesn't claim to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, in that case, like, it would be a little bit obnoxious for you to share the gospel with your lost friend every time you're together. But here, if somebody is under the process of formal church discipline or has been excommunicated, your relationship with them needs to shift to calling them to repentance and sharing the gospel with them and warning them every time you're together. Like, don't just hang out with them like you're still boys. Warn them and call them to repentance. Like, I, I need you to hear me. Like, this is serious. We're really not playing games here. The wages of sin is death. 
And the danger is that if someone would be repeatedly confronted in their sin and yet continue to refuse to repent for that to the point that they're uh, put out of partnership in the church and they refuse to come back to Jesus, the danger in that is that they're going to go to hell. Like, I I know that's not fun or cool to talk about in 2022. We're past all of that, but, but it's true. Like, us as a church excommunicating someone is saying, hey, to the best of our knowledge and ability, we just can't in good conscience affirm your faith in Jesus any longer because of the pattern of unrepentant sin in your life. If they still refuse to repent after all of that, they're putting themselves in danger of going to hell. And you want to warn them away from that. And so I know It's not fun to talk about, and this is not a topic to get jazzed up about, but we do this because it really matters. Like, it is not caring or loving to foam the runway to hell for somebody who's claiming the name of Jesus but living a life that looks nothing like Jesus. It is not loving to act like nothing is wrong and never confront it because we don't want to ruffle any feathers or we don't want to make any mess in the church. Like, we can call that whatever we want to call it. We can call it love, we can call it tolerance, we can call it acceptance, but it's not any of those things. It's just us being a bunch of cowards. I don't want to do that. I don't want us to be unfaithful to Jesus. And so as difficult as this is, when the time comes for it and calls for it, we want to walk in this. Now, I want to address two groups of people who might be mishearing this. And so first, people who claim the name of Jesus and are struggling against sin. Look, I know that the fight against sin sometimes feels like a losing battle and a frustration of why you can't seem to get victory in this area, but I need you to hear me. If you are struggling against your sin, if you're fighting it, even if that fight is weak and often failing, you should have every assurance in the world that you truly are Jesus's and that he has redeemed you, that you really are unleavened, that Christ has been sacrificed for you, that your sins are forgiven. You should take great rest and great comfort and hope in that. But then too, on the other hand, whether you're claiming the name of Jesus or not, if there's no struggle against sin in your life, no sorrow over the fact that you've sinned against God, just sorrow that you got caught or that you have to face the consequences of it, not even a desire to change, I want to warn you, you should have no assurance of salvation. You're playing a dangerous game with God, and it is a game that you're going to lose. But you don't have to. You could repent. You could turn around. You could experience grace and healing from Jesus today. Well, I'll close with this. Hopefully after a really uh, difficult passage, it'll be uh, a means of encouragement to you. In God's grace, there are times when we really do get to see uh, what Paul hopes for here, and we really do get to see restoration. Uh, if you're a partner here, you know we've walked through a case of formal church discipline just this year, and we're a few months ago at the final step of getting ready to have to vote to excommunicate somebody out of fellowship in the church, but man, before that, the week before we took that vote, just over the past few months, we have got to celebrate uh, this man repenting and coming back to Jesus. God did a miraculous work to restore this man to repentance and bring him real repentance and bring him back to Jesus. And like you and I, we get to celebrate that. Like right now, the power of God to work restoration through this process. And so yes, church discipline, it's not fun. It's always going to be hard. It's always going to be messy. But the fame of Jesus matters too much. The church matters too much. The person under discipline matters too much 
much to turn a blind eye to blatant sin in our community. And so even when it's hard, we want to walk in this. Because obedience to Jesus, the witness of the gospel, and the witness to the power of the gospel to transform lives, it's worth it. Let me pray that we would. Uh, Jesus, uh, thank you for your word, even when it's a difficult word. Um, God, we do know that this is here for our good. God, that um, as difficult and as countercultural as a process like this might be, that you have established it to be a means to wake people up from walking down a path that will destroy them. You've established it as a means to protect uh, the witness of your church so that your gospel might be on display. You've established it so that your fame would continue to spread. And so Jesus, help us. Uh, this is not an easy thing. This is not a comfortable thing. Um, and God, we know from experience it's going to be messy when we walk in this, but help us when we have to, uh, to walk in this practice. Help us to um, preserve the purity of your church and the hope of restoration any time that we might have to uh, engage in this process. God, I pray that you would. In your name, amen.